Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today. Excited to be here as always, and I've got something unusual for you today, and I'm going to throw a little aside in here as well. My guest is calling in from Pensacola, Florida, and my regular listeners and my local listeners, because I'm on iHeart, but I broadcast out of WAXE here in Vero Beach. Um, Vero Beach has a different time zone than Pensacola, Florida. So if you didn't know that, your trivia fact of the day is Florida has two time zones, in case you did not know that. So my good morning, afternoon, and evening always has even meaning in Florida, because you just never know. So my guest today is really an, an interesting person, and it's my first Navy flyer that I've ever had an opportunity to interview. You all know that I love talking to military guys. My dad was Korean War Army. Lots of dear friends in the military, and I so respect and appreciate what our military do to protect us every single day. We read the news, and there's just so much going on in the world, and that's what we're being allowed to know about. I had Brad Taylor on a few weeks ago talking about his newest book, Daughter of War, but we really got into a whole conversation about Syria, North Korea, Switzerland, and a lot of other geopolitical stuff that's going on. Not usual for me on my show, but when people are writing things that make me think, that make me shift my perspectives, I really want to have them on the show. And Mary Reesberg, a dear, dear friend of mine in Pensacola, recommended that I interview Kevin Miller. And it started out just because he's written three books um, focused on Navy and Navy flyers. and But he's more than that. And I wanted to have him on the show. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Laura. Uh, really appreciate the invite. Yeah, you know, it's it's exciting to have people who have very unique perspectives on the show. And as I've mentioned, military is just something that I really want to support and help you guys and, and gals in the military do and get your message out. And you're doing some really interesting things. Now, you're a Top Gun. You're that guy that flew FA-18 Hornets on and off carriers. You have, what, over a thousand carrier landings? Over a thousand. Yeah, that that, uh, that, that means I'm an old guy. All right, so, so here's my one question. And I, I have way more than that, but I've always wanted to ask this. Is it any different, less scary, scarier from the first time you trapped and landed on a carrier to that thousandth time? It was a, a lot less scary. Um, sure, you, you'll always remember your uh, your first day and certainly first night carrier landing. I, you know, that's a, that's a, a sea story into itself. Um, but uh, I also remember uh, number 1,000, and, uh, and I and okay, here it is. Wow, what a, what a wonderful career, and, uh, and, and savored every minute of it. There are very few people that actually achieve the level of skill that you have had in the Navy. You were not only, you know, a Navy flyer flying F-18s, 24-year veteran, uh, tactical navigator. Um, you commanded a carrier-based strike fighter squadron. You, you know, these are you were in the Pentagon on 9-11. These are not small achievements. What drove you? to want to put your life on the line and achieve the levels that you did with your career? 
my my father was Navy, and he was not a flyer, but uh, but I was exposed to naval aviation as a child, and uh, um, and it just clicked, and it, it's just you know I I want to grow up and 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 uh, and be a be a Navy pilot, and and uh, uh, was very fortunate that I was able to do that. It was I was able to to live my childhood dream, but it was the only thing I ever wanted to do, and and there was really nothing all that remarkable about me, you know, throughout my childhood. And I lived all over the country, you know, as a Navy kid, um, you know, going from school to school. But uh, what was remarkable is that singular drive. And uh, I was very, very fortunate that that uh, that I was able to uh, to pursue it and, uh, and have some success with it. I would imagine that not only the flight training, but other training that you have to go through would be daunting to say the least you know it's it's a you know and tom wolf wrote about this and in the right stuff it is a uh you're you're climbing the ziggurat you know there's 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 every every step in the ladder and so flight school certainly was the hardest thing i ever did a lot harder than college and in flight school the pressure was really on we we were told, okay, you know, you guys are competing against one another for the types of airplanes that, that you guys want to fly. So if you want to fly a certain type of airplane, you better get good grades. And wow. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're studying all through the weekend. And, and, and there's physical aspects of it. Uh, there, there's survival training, there, you know, out, out in the woods, you know, living off the land. Um, all the water training, you know, in full flight gear in the pool, and uh, and you're not allowed to use your flotation devices. You just have to swim and float. I mean, that's not easy. Uh, and then there's all the devices they put you in upside down. You have to escape. So um, all important. And and but it's just you know every day was something new, a new challenge that you had to master. Then you go on to the next challenge. And is the whole idea behind all of that training to see how you do in worst case scenarios? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, okay. This is what we're going to do today. Here are the contingencies. You know, what if the weather? What if the airplane has a malfunction? What if this? What if that? And so we spend a lot of time in our in our pre-flight briefing and preparation, going over all that. If this happens, this is how we're going to we're going to do this first, then this. Sometimes airborne things will happen that you didn't brief. But you have your training to fall back on, and you can come up with a uh, a, a quick plan uh, um, on the fly. Pardon the pun, and uh, and things work out. I I read a lot of books by astronauts and about the space program because I'm a total space geek. And I remember reading I don't remember which astronaut wrote it, but he said that the the process by which you go from being trained and selected as as an astronaut and actually getting into space is they literally go through killing you thousands and thousands of times on paper and making you go in-depth through every possible scenario that that would i would imagine that that would debilitate and freeze a lot of people just going well that could happen to me oh that could happen to me how do you move past that i mean what is it about your brain right because not everybody has this they can see those what ifs and it freezes them what is it about you and your brain that enables you to go eh, okay you know um it's a great question and i think that it was first of all you're you're drawn to flight i was drawn to flight and i wanted to fly and 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 not everyone does 
and and some people say I, I, you could never put me in an airplane. You know, I don't want to jump out of an airplane, as, as an example, I, and I, ne- I never had to, thank goodness. But some people like to do that. But the level of training that we got, yes, all those scenarios. Um, when you when you go through those scenarios in the simulator, or even just just talking amongst yourselves in the ready room, um, you're going to know what to do if that ever happens. Uh, astronauts are wonderful, and, and here in Pensacola is a Naval Aviation Museum, and I had a position there uh, on the on the foundation staff for several years, and got to meet some Apollo astronauts. One is Gene Cernan, and Gene Cernan, who who uh, who sadly passed away several years ago, and he said that uh, you know night carrier landings were a lot harder than anything he did in the space program. He also said. And he was an astronaut in the 60s and 70s and, and what was going on with his buddies at that time, the Vietnam War. And he was, uh, he, he missed it. And he felt bad that he missed the Vietnam War, wow. which was intense combat. And, of course, many of his friends were, were lost and captured. But uh, to him, that was, that was a real test. Now, now, any of us will say, no, Gene, you, you were an astronaut, extremely dangerous, and did an outstanding job for our nation and as absolutely sterling service. But but he did feel that way. It, 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 interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, I never thought of it that way because I had never heard that quote about about Gene Cernan, who I just absolutely love him, and he's not as spoken about as some of the other Apollo astronauts. But do you think it was because it was basically him going up against a thing, you know, like the rocket going up into space and this other versus what you had to do, which is, and the Vietnam guys, the Navy flyers and the people on the ground, you're, you're going up against another person where there's a lot of other factors and, you know, the loss of other somebody else's life versus just potentially your own. I, I think so. I, in the, in the Vietnam war, of course, you know, pilots are deployed there for months and months and months, and they're flying over enemy territory day after day after day, sometimes twice a day or in night. Um, Gene Cernan, of course, has the whole world, uh, and, and, and astronauts like him, have the whole world watching. And it is very dangerous, you know, being on top of a Saturn V rocket yeah. and, and going to the moon and coming back. That's incredible uh, risk. And, uh, you know, they, they had to know their stuff, amazing training. I, I find it the, the same level of risk, but I, I will say, uh, you know, having, you know, putting yourself over enemy territory for, for weeks, months, uh, that's pretty intense. And so I, I think that, you know, Gene certainly looked up to his, uh, his compatriots that did that, but I, I assure you they all looked up to him too. Yeah, anybody that's willing to put their life on the line to protect others has my respect, uh, to the nth degree, I can't even imagine it. My dad was Korean War, but he was stationed in Europe. He wanted to go to Korea, but his skill set, they needed him in Europe. He was in the Army Corps of Engineers, and they needed him prepping all this stuff to to get to Korea. And my dad actually ran away when he was underage to try to enlist in the Army. You know, I think... Many of us can relate to that, and, and uh, you know, you, you want to go. You've, you've trained for, you know, in my case, I was a, a combat aviator. Um, I didn't experience real combat until toward the end of my career. 
and you, but you do want to go. Most people think, oh, you, what are you, nuts? You want, want to put yourself in that situation? But when, when you train for that, and, and that's, that's what you do, uh, yes, you, you do want to. Um, you don't, you're not going to, to force yourself in there, but, but if called, then you're ready to answer that call. Is modern aerial combat anything at all like what we see in the movies and Top Gun and any of the World War II movies? I mean, is it, is it really like that? The, the easiest way for me to answer that question is to talk about the absence of sound. Now, in the movies, there's a soundtrack and there's, there's explosions and, and all these, these noises. But in, in real life, it's silent. You're, you're, in, uh, you're in your little cocoon, in, in my case, and so I've, I've got a canopy and I can see, I can see everything. Um, but uh, we would come into a, a target area and then you just see some light bulbs going off or maybe uh, a Roman candle, just uh, the flares of light, and, and that's anti-aircraft. And, and you don't hear it, but, but you, can, you can certainly see it. Uh, another memory is uh, you know, being, being over a, a target and, and just sensing muffled flashes of light going off underneath me. Again, that's, that's, that's an anti-aircraft that, that, you're, that you're not hearing. Uh, so, it's, uh, yeah, th- that is the, uh, the, the, the biggest takeaway for me. So then what I've seen in movies like Top Gun and all the other ones where the pilot and uh, the Rio, the guy in the back, right? Yes. You're constantly looking and turning. It's because you literally have to have visual. Otherwise, I mean, there's radar to a point, but you really, that is true. You guys have to swivel around quite that much when you're in those scenarios, just looking to trust your eyes over anything. It's a terrific scene in Top Gun. It's towards the end of the movie. And they're in their, their, their final fight there, and uh, this, you, you're looking at the, uh, the radar intercept officer and ba- in the back of the airplane, and then you see a, uh, a bandit, if you will, goes zipping down the, the left wing line, and he whips his head around to see it. And, and that, that is an actual scene that they took in the real airplane that they, they put into the movie, and it's a terrific scene. And it, it, it just gives you a sense of the speed, the closeness. Yes, your radar is going to get you to what we call the merge, and then it's eyes out, and you're maneuvering the aircraft, extremely dynamic, very physical, you know, putting four, five, six Gs on your body and keeping it there as you're maneuvering, you're whipping your head around, trying to keep track of everything that's going on. Uh, you, you come out of it, and uh, you, you've had a workout. We've been very fortunate here in Vero Beach to have the Blue Angels here several times. And there's, ever since I was a little kid, every time I've seen them or uh, the Thunderbirds, there is something about the sound of that jet going overhead, and especially with the Blue Angels, the striking color of, of the jets, that makes me feel even more respectful and glad I'm an American, that wow, look at, look at what we've got and these skills and the training that people are going through. Now, you're in Pensacola where the Blue Angels are based out of. Many right? of my friends over the years were, were on the team, as they say, as Blue Angel demo pilots, and they're just terrific guys, first of all. They're just great people to be around, and they're, they're superb pilots. And people say, well, the Blue Angels, they, they you know, you know, aerial death-defying stunts. Well, 
they they don't do stunts. They they do very precise maneuvers that they practice. Of course, they're doing things that any naval aviator can do. We just don't do it at a couple of hundred feet uh, in formation with five other airplanes, eighteen inches apart. But uh, but they they practice it and and they spend a long time and and uh, and this is this is another a hallmark of tactical aviation and in briefing exactly what they're going to do then they go do it and then they come back and they spend a long time debriefing it and going over every little thing that wasn't quite right so they can fix it and make it better. I was privileged to fly with a team in the back seat 20 years ago while one of my buddies was on the team and, and what a wonderful unforgettable experience that was. Is it scarier when you're in the back seat and can't control what's going on? No, knowing not, not at all. And uh, um, you know, of course, I'm I'm flying you know with my friend. And we took off from Pensacola, and we got out to sea. And said, "Hey, you want to fly?" Oh, yeah, sure. So I'm I'm flying in the slot with the Blue Angels, and it was just just a thrill. And this is a formation that we we fly in the fleet from time to time. And so then we get to the the, the crowd along Pensacola Beach, and he says, "Okay, I'll take the airplane back. You got it." And he put us right underneath number one, and I felt if I could stand up and back i could touch number one's tail like it is very close and very loud but i i just had a blast and uh you know just just uh um just you know back there you know watching my friends you know just is admiring their skill and and of course you know waving at the crowd uh, what a great day they always take some locals up whenever they're in town some person that will then go back and talk about their experience and I, and there's always some press person that gets to go up too and I always laugh because the biggest thing they always say is I didn't throw up or I threw up you know but it's like this badge of honor to have not thrown up when a blue angel took you in the back seat up Yes, well, I'm 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 proud to say I didn't experience uh, that uh, misfortune. Uh, they they want to show you uh, the public the professionalism of naval aviation, and the Blue Angels are a recruiting tool, and it's going to be a little boy or girl that's going to say, "Wow, can can I do that when I grow up?" And and the answer is yes, and and uh, it's it's just a a a wonderful thing for the public to see. Uh, the, the professionalism of our military. The Navy, uh, Navy flyers especially, have played a fascinating part in American culture. You know, the women want to marry a, a Navy flyer. There's something about that Navy flyer and the dress whites, you know, officer and a gentleman, any, any of those movies, even the TV series Jag, the character Harm, he was yeah. a, he's a lawyer, but he's a pilot, you know, he's a Navy flyer. What do you think the fascination is with America and Navy flyers? Hmm. Well, I um, you, you asked that question. I'm thinking. Well, I I was in my choker white uniform with gold wings when I met my future wife at a, at a wedding reception. Um, she uh, she, uh, she had her own life in uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, and and, uh, and and did a great job playing hard to get. So uh, we've been married now for coming on 34 years. Um, I think uh, the romance of the sea, I believe, is is something about this. You know, to to go to go off on a on a ship over the ocean, and uh, of course, in the past century, you know, people were flying airplanes off these ships, and uh, there's a lot of uh, I would say independence. You know, you're gonna okay, you take this airplane, you go over the horizon, and we have a job for you to do, and then then, then come back here and find this ship and land on it. Um, yeah, I think people are uh, saying, "Wow, that's that, that's pretty cool." It's it's like the 
the best of the best, right? Because there aren't a lot of people that make it to be Navy jet flyers. If, if you go through the front door and you're, and you're physically qualified and you apply yourself, you can do it. And people say, well, what does it take to be a pilot? Well, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time <laughs> so if, you're, if you're physically coordinated. And you need to be able to memorize things under some degree of pressure and, you know, and, and not go to pieces uh, when you need that information. And, and you're going to do fine if, if you apply yourself. Um, the, uh, I, I think that the, there's, you know, tactical aviators around the world, pilots around the world, they're all professional. They're all superb. You know, there are, there are Cessna pilots that, that fly Cessnas professionally and, and exactly the way they should. And, and, and I look up to those guys. I'm, I'm not currently uh, flying anything right now. Um, but, but, yes, to, to fly off a ship, to, to fly a jet or a helicopter, off a ship day and night uh, that that does uh it does set us apart you, you know you sound so humble when you're, you're talking about it i remember a number of years ago about 10 years ago i met the head of nasa who was a shuttle pilot and i i rarely get tongue-tied when i meet people but when you meet somebody that does something that you've always wanted to do and and you meet him I couldn't speak and he he just shook my hand and my friend said she's just such a huge fan and he goes oh I just put my hand my pants on like everybody else and you know we're just like nobody else we're you know we're like everybody else and and I laughed and my friend goes yeah but there's like 20 of you guys in the world <laughs> that do what you do and it does set you apart in some ways from a lot of the rest of the world because you're doing things that not everybody gets to do. You're literally seeing the world from a different place. Yes. And um, join the Navy and see the world. And uh, I've seen some beautiful parts of it uh, during the Cold War. Remember that? Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, off Norway, up on, uh, you know, up around uh, North Cape. And that was, that was what we needed to do in the 1980s and of course in the 1990s spent uh, much of my career in the uh, in the Persian Gulf over the Arabian Peninsula which is is nothing but beige sand there's there's not any color other than than, than sand uh, down there that's all you can see everything is everything is brown um, but certainly would would never trade those memories and, and those space shuttle astronauts and I, I know a couple of them a couple of my Squatter mates and shipmates, uh, Jeff Ashby, Joe Edwards come to mind. I hope I'm not leaving anyone else out. Um, again, they're just terrific guys, and and they they volunteered for this training, and and they were able to to go through it just like flight training. Um, but yes, I, I think they'd be the first to say just put their pants on one leg at a time. All right, we're going to go into the national news break, and then we'll be back with more from Kevin Miller, 24-year veteran of the Navy, Navy Flyer, um, over a 1,000 carrier landings night and day out on an Air Force carrier. And he's going to be talking to us when we get back about some really interesting stuff that's going on in the world and, you know, about his foray into publishing as well. So we'll be right back with more from Kevin Miller and my show. It's all about the questions. 
Welcome back, everyone. If you missed the first half of the show, you're going to want to catch it on podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, or at um, itsallaboutthequestions.com, and you can listen to the first half probably in a couple of days. I'll have the recordings up. I'm here with, well, actually not quite here in studio. He has called in from Pensacola here with Kevin Miller, former Navy Flyer, FA-18 Hornet pilot, and he's actually been in the back seat of a Blue Angels jet when it was performing, but he's got over a thousand carrier landings at night and day. He's been he worked at uh, the Pentagon, and we've just been talking about a lot of different things. Kevin has three book a book series out, the Flip Wilson series, all about Navy pilots and stuff going on in the South China Sea and so many different things. So, Kevin, it's so great to to have you on the show. And that first half hour was wow, just so much. I loved everything we talked about so far. Well, Laura, it's great to be back. Thanks so much. Enjoying it. Yeah. So. You know, we we talked a lot about how you became a pilot, what it's like to do what you do. But, you know, there's this, you've had this life. I think you, I read that your last tour in uniform was a legislative liaison, completely different world than being the guy that flies off the carrier and, and is defending. Now you're in a, a different war, a war of uh, politics. Yes. And... Which is harder? <laughs> I think I know the answer to that. You don't have to answer it if you don't yes, want to. Uh, gosh, I, I sure wish I could have another night catch up. Um, the, uh, I had fun in legislative affairs. Uh, I, I, my office was in the Pentagon, but my job was to uh, be the answer person for naval aviation to the House and Senate. So the, there, there would be professional staffers in the House and Senate uh, authorizers, and they have a question about, you know, why are we spending $2.2 billion to buy 24 FA-18s? And so I'd, I'd give them the answer for that. Uh, then there would be a staffer uh, in a district, let's pick a state, let's pick Florida, that uh, has a naval aviation question, so I would help get that young staffer that question. And I enjoyed it. It was a uh, uh, I found that the professional staffers, you know, they, they looked like me. They had been around the block, and in the new world, the, the bodies were buried in the in the defense budget. Uh, uh, the uh, office staffers, I, I say office, the representative staffers are typically young 20s and don't have any background, but they're very bright, and they are quick to pick it up if you take a few minutes to explain to them. So it, it was a, it was a rewarding tour for me. Did you get different perspectives on what was happening in the world when you're on a carrier active duty pilot versus when you were a legislative liaison person? In legislative affairs, the focus uh, for for us was the budget. The, the monies that are spent today are going to buy equipment in a, a couple, three years. Uh, right now, our defense budget, uh, and I'm, I'm still still involved in this, uh, $700 billion, 730 the, the House is going to figure out what the allocation is going to be, and then they're going to give the military this money. Okay, military is going to get, and we'll make a round number, $700 billion, and that's divided. You know, each service is going to get their share, and there's, there's cats and dogs, and from that, you're going to operate the service, but you're also going to buy things that, that wear out. You have to buy ships at regular intervals and airplanes, same thing. And, of course, people. 
who, who come and go. So, so all of that is, it takes years to build a budget, then Congress started right now. And in, in theory, this September, they'll have a, a signed uh, budget, and, uh, and then the military executes the following year. Now, in theory, Washington, as we all know, uh, doesn't work the way it should, and that's being kind, isn't it? Yes. Um, but that's how it should work. And, you know, we just had the recent shutdown, and I, I was reading the other day, I, I'm a, I owned a tech services company for 15 years. I consider myself a geek still. And cybersecurity is something I've talked about a lot on this show. And I remember reading an article about how the government workers that went back that handle cybersecurity are really concerned about how many hacks might have happened when they weren't allowed in the offices because they were considered non-essential personnel. Yeah. And that's frightening because you would think that protecting our infrastructure, homeland security, all of that would be considered essential personnel, right, versus non-essential personnel. What What are your thoughts around all of that kind of stuff With from your perspective as a military person? How do you justify or how do you handle what's happening, knowing what you see in the world? I mean, you're still a defense consultant. Yes. uh, In this recent shutdown, the military was not affected. Last year, the military budget was was set for the next two years. The Coast Guard was, though. Uh, But Coast Guardsmen came to work every day, and and they're they're deployed around the world and, and, and doing their thing. And, and not getting a paycheck for a couple, three weeks, and that absolutely affects their families. It, it's, it's very bad. Um, in the, I've been in the military and uh, uh, um, during other shutdowns. And, and the, earlier this decade, uh, there was a, this thing called sequestration. And so this is uh, the, you know, the Budget Control Act, and this hurts the military because the military has to execute these contracts and when there's when there's no money to execute them or you can't you know the world changes and you have to buy new stuff but you can't because of the restrictions in sequestration the military loses a lot of money and penalties and it, it they have to keep using worn out ships and airplanes longer than they should it is a huge impact but this is the battles that go on on Capitol Hill and the second, third order effects can be devastating. It's it's not good, and we all wish it wouldn't happen, but that that's our reality. Now, in your books, you you talk about the South China Sea, and I know I've heard about this in the news. It keeps going up and down lately, and you know I I always I worry because of what you said with older ships and this constant battle of. We should fund our military. We should not fund our military. But, you know, why do you think people still go to war when we've seen no one ever truly wins? I mean, if you just put into context the South China Sea. It's a great point. And in in recent decades, decades, the the United States uh, has not won. Wars end and, uh, you know, in my in my career, I got to go to Newport, Rhode Island, and go to War College, which was a wonderful year learning about history and, and about our country, about the world. But wars end when the loser stops fighting. So if if we stop fighting for whatever whatever good reason, 
then then the enemy is is still there and and they can they can think that they won our our enemies in World War II knew that they were defeated and they said okay we're we're done fighting you guys and and we'll cooperate with you um Desert Storm which was the war that I kind of grew up with uh that was a truce so we uh we told Saddam Hussein okay now all right we're going we're going to stop fighting you but uh, you know, here's here's our conditions, and if you break any of these conditions, we're going to come back. Well, he did within months and years. Uh, for the next ten plus years, guys like me were still fighting that war throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s, before we had to go back again in 2003. Um, it is is very very troubling, and uh, not many people know you know about uh, about the geopolitics of the world. It's a fascinating subject. Um, Let's see. You asked about the South China Sea. Yeah, because you know I I've been reading a lot about it because I'm I'm a research geek, right? A third of the world's shipping passes through over three trillion dollars in trade each year. Major fisheries, oils, and gas. But you would think that nobody would allow what's happening there to happen. Yet it is. Yes, it is. Uh, the South China Sea today is like the Mediterranean was 500 years ago with uh, European states and, and the Ottoman Empire. It's like the Caribbean was 300 years ago with uh, the days of sail and, and Great Britain and Spain and France all jockeying for position in the New World. The South China Sea is the size of the country of Mexico. It's the size of the United States east of the Mississippi. And, and yes, it, all those things that you stated, uh, certainly the, the, the shipping that goes through there, vital. To, to to all those countries in the region, about seven countries touch it, and and that all those products that are made primarily in China go around the world. So what is going on there? Those countries led by China are are pouring dredge sand on pristine coral reefs and making military bases. And and one is a place called Fiery Cross Reef. It's in the Spratly Islands. It is out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, five years ago it was a pristine coral reef with little fish swimming around, and now it is an island with a 9,000-foot runway. 9,000 feet? And, and, and 5,000 people live on it. Now, the, the, the runway here at Naval Air Station Pensacola, a major installation, is 8,000 feet. But uh, Fiery Cross has a 9,000-foot runway, which can operate any airplane in the world. And there are other islands around there that they have absolutely militarized. Now, why are they doing this? China thinks that the South China Sea is their blue territory. Back from the days of the Tang Dynasty, 1,400 years ago. You remember, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Summarize. The rest of the world, this is absurd. I mean, oh, come on. This, this is this open water. This is in, and, and you're destroying it. Uh, they don't feel that way and and they they want to take care of their shipping in what they consider their home waters the rest of the world doesn't see it and conflict can can start with a small spark and in my latest novel it does and so i go through okay there's a spark this very bad spark and then my hero flip wilson gets a call hey you're you're going to deploy in three days and go into combat and that's in your third book in the series fight fight Yes. Yeah. As I was reading them, it it really got me thinking about what's really happening and and what you wrote in the books. And I interviewed James Rollins on the radio and also 
live at the Vero Beach Book Center last Friday, and then uh, Brad Taylor and Brandon Webb, you know, a lot of military guys and guys that write books like this. James Rollins is not a military guy, but he does a lot of work with the military. And are you ever worried about your books being prophetic? I mean, like that you're giving people ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Um, My second novel, Declared Hostile, takes place in the Caribbean near Venezuela, and Yes, some of the things that that I that I have in that book are, are happening today, primarily with the, uh, uh, the the talk of the American diplomats, the danger presented to them, uh, Russian bombers flying to Venezuela. But these things have been happening for years, and and no, I, they it's not like uh, Russia, Venezuela, you know, other bad actors around the world are going to read a novel that uh, that any of us wrote and say, oh, hey, here's a good idea, Let, let's do this. Um, even you know some of the things that are happening today in the South China Sea, my readers will say, "Hey, this is just like out of the headlines," and it's very similar. But it's been going on for a long time, and and uh, think what the value of authors like us. Uh, we we have some background, and we can we can inform people and educate them in a very entertaining way. Whereas they, they wouldn't probably spend that much time in, in other media forms to to get a, uh, a grounding, if you will, in this area. What made you want to write? And did that start before you left the military, that you had this enjoyment or wanted to put pen to paper, or did it happen after you left the military? I had a writing ability that, that, that I knew I had, and, and uh, as, a, as an officer, of course, you're, you're writing all the time and reports, and I had done some professional articles. Uh, but I had a creative writing ability, and after I retired, a friend said, you should write a book, and I, I waved him off, oh, go on. He said, no, listen to me, you need to write a book, you've got stories. And I said, well, maybe, maybe I should, because people would ask me at a cocktail party, you know, what is it like to fly a fighter? And and how do you really explain that uh, without, you know, dominating? So I, well, it's really cool, I'll, I'll bet. And, and, uh, but, but here in a, in a novel, you can, you can go into greater detail, and so I started writing. Maybe you know, maybe the kids would would like to have it years from now. And when I finished Raven One, I realized, wow, I've really got something here. And and there, I, I went. Uh, I called around in New York and and uh, and trying to get it published. And then I uh, I found a friend uh, named Jeff Edwards with Brave Ship Books, and he told me about this thing called print on demand and uh, the Kindle, which I was aware of, and my life changed. And, and your books have gotten amazing numbers and levels of reviews, some of the highest of even some of the number one New York Times bestsellers. What do you credit that to? I think readers appreciate the authenticity. They know that uh, it, it's it's written by someone who has, has, has been there and done that, uh, to, to use that phrase. What, what I try to do is make the books human. I've got human characters. They're flawed. And, and readers love that because, you know, we're all flawed. And uh, they, can, they can relate, all right, you know, what, what would it be like to be in this situation? And you don't know what to do. There's, there's all this information coming at you in, in say, a fighter cockpit. And, uh, and you've got to make the right decision every time. Uh, but they, they appreciate the authenticity. I, I get, I, I had a retired Russian uh, naval officer contact me and says, well, I can really relate. I think anyone in the military around the world can, can relate. Um, and it's fascinating to get people from Australia, India, say, I really enjoyed your books. I got a lot out of them. 
uh, extremely rewarding. Well, this is what came up for me when I was reading the three, because my listeners know that I read, if I have a person on my show that has happened to written a book, I read the thing from cover to cover. In your case, there were three books, so I read three of them because it's it's a series kind of thing with similar with the characters going through them. I was like, they have to think about all of this and then fly the plane? You know, it's the 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 briefing beforehand uh, could be well over an hour. It's, it's probably several hours for a, uh, a a big combat mission, and then then you go fly it, and then you'll come back and you'll spend the same amount of time going over every little thing that wasn't quite right, and, and, and the things that were right. Okay, this went well. This week we can improve on. And there's a way to do it without putting your your finger in the chest of a of a young lieutenant. And, and, and destroying him. Uh, and uh, so this is briefing and debriefing and tactical aviators and I would say special forces. It, it's a hallmark of, of how we get better. It's the culture of continuous improvement. Um, I, I had some experience uh, in my second life after the military teaching this to civilian organizations. Uh, they're fascinated by it, and it does change cultures. Absolutely. All right, so talk about this idea of continuous improvement because my listeners are a lot of them are entrepreneurs or they're they work for somebody or they've got something going on in their life and they're struggling with how to move forward can you explain in a few minutes some ideas from this one you know if if you were to say uh okay uh, mikey you know go make a sales call on this on this customer and tell me how it goes well, Mikey may not have every piece of information he needs. So if you sit down and spend some time with him, all right, you're going to visit Mr. Smith at this time, and, and these are the things you really must emphasize, and boom, boom, boom. And then you train Mikey up, and so he goes and conducts a call, probably with someone else, someone you know holding his hand or training, if you will. And then Mikey's a qualified salesman next time. Then you come back and say, all right, well, here's the best practice. When we're talking to the client, it's a good idea to do this and this. Uh, we can stay away from this and that. And and then Mikey is going to be a much more valuable employee. And, and so just coming back and talking about it, frankly, this is what was good, as we say, and this is what was other. And we use the word other because we have such fragile pilot egos we don't want to use the word bad so uh, here's the goods and here are the others and then we can all learn and, and go out for the next event well it's interesting that you said other versus bad because uh, having owned my own business for 15 years and sold it one of the hardest things in the world was that review time or when somebody would come back and you know you had a good outcome or you had a an other outcome, right? An outcome that didn't go the way you wanted. And you try to debrief and talk about it and defenses go up and people get angry and it's try to have constructive criticism and, and whatever it may be to move it forward. How do you recommend that? What would some ideas that you would have that people can use to begin perhaps shifting their culture inside their organizations to get rid of or don't tone down that defensiveness? It is a great question. Um, it has to have buy-in from the front, and, and this is hard to do. So the, the, the boss has to say, all right, I, I, I want to hear from you. I want, you know, when, when I'm falling short. And so what's, you know, who's, who's the first employee that's going to do that? But, uh, but, but, but some brave employee will say, well, uh, you know, I think you were five minutes late today for work. Okay, well, I'm going to work on that. You're right. You're right. I need to set a good example, and, and so there, there's an example of that. The uh, Now, as, as pilots, we are criticized 
every single day, <laughs> and uh, and oftentimes by our lieutenants, and 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 that's the right thing to do, to to improve us. Uh, so it, when it becomes a daily thing, then when you have that year-end review, it's not. It, hey, this is the first time I've heard of this in a year or or six months or whatever the interval is, and you don't have those defenses. So it's be consistent with it. Don't be mean. Absolutely, and and uh, you're you're going to develop your people if you you know frank frank constructive criticism, uh, you know two stars and a wish, you know you you are the, the best uh, salesperson we have. Everyone is so impressed with your level of knowledge, but uh, but oh my gosh, you come to work an hour late every day. So if you could just work on that, I mean things would be great, and that's a valid thing to 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 you know debrief someone on when it really happens. But if you save that. Hey, you're you're late for work every day for for a year from now. It's not going to work. Okay, we're getting close on towards the end of the show. It's it's amazing how fast our time goes. What's a, a last thought that you'd like to? Oh, and I want to make sure that people can find out how to get your books and how to reach out to you as well, Kevin. So let's start with that. How can people find you, reach out, get your books, or ask sure. you any uh, questions? Kevin Miller Author is my website, uh, and on that website we're talking about Blue Angels. I have a, a blog post. I talked about my experience there. But uh, my books are on Amazon, uh, Raven One, Declared Hostile, Fight Fight, all on Amazon. I have a short story there, autobiographical, High Desert Reflections. Um, um, and so, uh, on the on the website, uh, you can you can email me and uh, certainly leave reviews for the books. Love to hear from you. All right, last thought that you'd like to leave my listeners with. Well, I think that uh, our our um, American military right now are the elite of our young people. Seventy three percent of our young people are not even qualified to join the military, and. Uh, the days of joining the military because the judge orders you to or, or not having a high school diploma are absolutely not the case. They're just, most of our military people have some college, if not degrees, tremendous training. They, they learn the team focus. They learn dependability and integrity for all they do. One percent of our nation is in uniform right now doing a wonderful job for us around the world. And it's a beautiful career. It's something that, sadly, our country and the world needs military. And, and this show is listened to in over, I think, 30 or 40 countries in podcast recording. And I, I just really want to thank you, Kevin, so much for your service, not only during the time you were in service, but all you're doing for our country and the world today to help make it a better place. Well, thank you very much, Laura. And I, I tell people, you know, they thank me for my service. You're you're very welcome. I wouldn't trade a day of it. Yeah, it just always amazes me the people that run in when everybody else is running out. And I don't know where the world would be if people weren't willing to run in in times of crisis. We we are, are very uh, very mindful of our responsibilities. Uh, um, as, uh, as as we serve, as you say, around the world. Yeah. And uh, we, we do believe that, that we are a force for good. Yeah. And, and the fact that you run in, but you don't always pull the trigger, that to me is amazing. You, That's you right. You balance that knowing that there's bigger ramifications. So thank you again for being on the show. And everybody, KevinMillerAuthor.com is Kevin's website. So Thanks. 
much, Laura. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was it was so great to have you on. I'm so glad Mary Reesberg introduced us, and have a great day in Pensacola. And everybody who's listening, if you missed the first half, go to itsallaboutthequestions.com or any podcast app to get it. And as always, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.